listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast in Seoul. It's Tuesday afternoon, May 26th, but in Geneva, it's still morning. And joining me via Skype from Geneva is Peter Prove, the director of the World Council of Churches Commission of the Churches on International Affairs. And uh, we're here to talk about Christianity in North Korea. Uh, Peter Prove, my guest today, has been the director of the World Council of Churches Commission of the Churches on International Affairs since 2014. Before that, he was the executive director of the Ecumenical Advisory Alliance, a Lutheran lawyer from Australia. Peter Prove has almost two decades of experience in the international policy area. He has served in numerous leadership roles in UN and civil society contexts, including as president of the NGO Special Committee on Human Rights based in Geneva. Thank you very much for joining me on the show today, Peter. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. So how long has the World Council of Churches had relations with uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea? Quite a long time. Um, I was astonished to discover when I took up this post that there is a more than 30-year history of uh, quite regular, quite frequent uh, relationships uh, between the World Council of Churches and counterparts in uh, North Korea. Ah, mm -hmm. As the first uh, foray in that direction, uh, there were no North Korean participants in that particular consultation, but it gave the mandate from the South Korean churches to open up uh, this relationship. And that was followed in the following year with a high-level uh, staff delegation to the DPRK, and uh, subsequently, the very first encounter between North and South Korean Christians, which was hosted here in Switzerland, in Lyon, in fact, in uh, 1986. Okay, so there's quite a history there. I want to come back to that history in a moment, but first, uh, I'll just sort of set the basics there. How many Christians are there in North Korea? Who knows? Um, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, it's very, very few in any event. Um, we uh, hear different things. Uh, we are told um, certain numbers by our counterparts uh, in North Korea, the Korean Christians Federation. Um, at best, uh, I think uh, we are told it's about twelve to 15,000. In reality, I think it's far fewer. Okay, so the twelve to 15,000, that's the number from the, uh, the Korean Christian Federation, which is your counterpart in the DPRK, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, and, and how are Christians defined in North Korea? Good question. There are, as you may know, uh, a number of uh, entities that are created to represent the different religious communities of uh, North Korea, all of which collectively are a tiny minority, of course. Mm. Uh, but there is the officially recognized Korean Christians Federation. There's an officially recognized Korean Buddhists Federation, a Korean Catholics Association. They treat uh, Catholics as a different religion. Mm. Uh, Korean Chonduists uh, Federation, and I believe uh, even a uh, Korean Orthodox uh, committee of some sort, uh, a much smaller body. So there are a number of recognized um, entities uh, for those communities. But how they define membership, again, I couldn't tell you exactly. Yeah, well, it is a good question. And also, what about um, the the, uh, the sort of controversial question? Are they considered real Christians by the World Council of Churches? Yeah, I often get asked that question. And, and uh, first of all, let me uh, uh, give full disclosure. I'm no theologian. I'm not ordained. I'm mm -hmm. therefore no authority on the question. But the, uh, but the WCC's position in general is to ask that question of anybody. Who can say who is a Christian? Who has the right to determine who is a real Christian? But what I can tell you is that what, from what we've seen, and I don't mean me, I mean my colleagues uh, over previous generations, uh, some of whom, whom have been South Korean or Korean-speaking theologians, uh, they are of the firm view that what they hear and see in North Korea in terms of the preaching and teaching has theological substance, is biblically founded. 
and uh, and therefore we do not doubt at its core the legitimacy of their beliefs. Okay, now you mentioned the Korean Christian Federation, the KCF, uh, which is your your counterpart organization. So if I understand correctly, in all of the WCC's liaisons with North Korea, it all goes through the Korean Christian Federation. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, So is this a government-run or controlled organization? Everything in North Korea is government-run and and government-controlled, yes. It's uh, an entity that exists under the auspices of the Korean Workers' Party in that silo mm-hmm. of uh, the North Korean structure, uh, as do all of the other um, religious entities, uh, which in turn fall under an umbrella uh, known as the Korean Religionists' Council. These are all government entities, and all the officials are also um, officials of the Korean Workers' Party. So there's no uh, separation between church and state in that sense. Are there any other uh, nations um, that are like that uh, in in the way that they uh, that they you know control their uh, uh, Christian organizations and other religious organizations? Of course, in this and uh, in many other respects, North Korea is a category all of its own, and uh, they're very it's very difficult to find cognates that uh, bear any resemblance to it. Uh, but certainly, um, the way in which churches have existed and do exist under uh, more authoritarian regimes bears some resemblance in some ways. Yeah, I wonder if, if Saudi Arabia could be a, a comparable uh, analog, analogy. I have to say, I don't know anything really at all about the uh, rela- arrangements for uh, um, uh, church formation and church identity in Saudi Arabia. But what I was going to say is that, of course, with regard to the issue of church-state relations, the Church of England is a case in which that separation is also not so evident. And uh, the, the, the closeness between church and state is somewhat close, of course, nothing like the North Korean example, mm. and certainly not with the same consequences. But, uh, but church and state relations are a complex issue, and there are all sorts of shades of gray. Uh, in different formations and different structures. Now, historically, uh, it's interesting to note, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, but maybe our listeners are not, that uh, Christianity was once very strong and growing in the northern part of Korea until 1945, the end of World War II. There was the uh, the very famous Pyongyang revival of 1907. Uh, and some figures suggest that uh, a high percentage of Pyongyang residents, and I've heard numbers anywhere between 20% and more than half of Pyongyang residents, were churchgoers and uh, as of you know, 1945, uh, both of Kim Il Sung, the first leader of of North Korea, both of his parents were active in the church, and uh, he had a distant uncle who was a Presbyterian minister, Kang Ryang Uk, who served as chairman of the Korean Christian Federation. Later, also did a stint as deputy prime minister of North Korea and as secretary of the Supreme People's Assembly. Um, so, you know, given all that, it's interesting to see. I guess how you could you could say how Christianity has fallen in North Korea that we've only got twelve to fifteen thousand in a couple of recognised churches. It's very much a state-controlled organisation. In fact, some would suggest that Kim Il Sung took elements of Christianity and welded them together to create his own religious type of institution, and that's why uh, Christianity had to be suppressed the way that it has been. Uh, does the World Council of Churches have a, a position on this? On this? Well, we certainly uh, agree, and it's actually worth recalling that history about the the salience of Christianity uh, in what is now North Korea. Uh, prior to the division and the conflict. Um, it indeed was a, a very strong uh, movement, missionary movement in, uh, in, in what is now North Korea. Um, and I think also what you just recalled about the, the family history of Kim Il-sung mm. 
is really important to underline. I mean, I think uh, I still find many people who are utterly shocked to discover that uh, Kim Il-sung's own parents were Christians. And it's actually something that uh, one of my former colleagues, Park Kyung-seo, now president of the South Korean Red Cross, discussed with Kim Il-sung on the two or three occasions in which he met with him. And uh, it's uh, from what I've heard from uh, Dr. Park, Kim Il-sung actually recognized and actually um, uh, underlined the importance of that background in his own formation. And I believe he wrote about it uh, to some extent in his, uh, in his memoirs. But this is really important history, and it helps to have a certain corrective of expectations and impressions. As to what has happened to the Christian community in North Korea, they are very much and have been the victims of what has happened to the Korean peninsula and to the Korean people as a whole in terms of division and conflict. Uh, and certainly in the context of the Korean War, many of the Christian communities fled south. And there are many people in church leadership in South Korea now who uh, have their origins, their family origins, in what is now North Korea. There was a massive dislocation of Christian community from north to south in the context of the conflict. Yeah, that's, um, that is, it's certainly important to keep that, uh, that history in mind there. You mentioned the the 1994 Tozanzo consultation. Now, I I have uh, it's been put to me here that the DPRK, in fact, first reached out to the World Council of Churches even before that in 1974, asking about joining. And I understand that at that time it was rebuffed. Do you know anything about that? I have heard some accounts of that, and one of my colleagues, who uh, former colleagues, who is a historian of these matters, uh, did attempt to to look into it. Um, uh, I don't have that information presently to hand, but it might be interesting for you to chase him up, uh, um, Reverend uh, Jusup Kum, Kum Jusup, who is now back in uh, South Korea. Um, he's a very, very um, capable historian on the on the matters of church history in, in Korea generally, in particular in North Korea. Okay. Um, and, and relations with the World Council of Churches. Um, I am aware that there, there are some, some reports of an earlier overture. Um, I don't have that information, and it's not part of the normal record of our mm. history in this regard, most of which, or all of which, dates to Tozanso and uh, shortly before that. Um, but but I have heard some reports. It's worth looking into, and maybe uh, Reverend Kum could assist. Um, is it normal that uh, a nation that wants to, to join the World Council of Churches has to have actually an officially recognized church in that country? Yes, um, there is a process and a set of criteria for application for church membership. I don't know that it necessarily, well, I presume it entails some sort of legal structure, um, some recognized structure in order to be eligible. Uh, and there are certain limitations upon um, numbers. There's a minimum number um, mm -hmm. of members. Exceptions can be made. Um, certainly, um, the constituency, as we understand it, of the Korean Christians Federation would fall well below the official uh, numerical limit. Um, but as I said, exceptions can be made and are made from time to time. So, if it is the case, if if I am, if my information is correct, that uh, uh, North Korea first made a, an application in 1974, then given the fact that there was no official church at that time, um, would have been a good reason for it not to have uh, acceded to the WCC. One one reason, certainly, the lack of uh, some sort of formal architecture by which it could be recognised. I imagine would have been. Uh, hypothetically, a, um, uh, an obstacle. Yeah, the first church uh, built after the Korean War, the Bongsu Church, uh, was built in 1988, and that's a good couple of years after the Tozanso consultation. Uh, do, do you think that it could it have been built specifically to uh, to respond to that and to you know, be part of the, the the joining of the World Council of Churches? 
I don't know. I, I could speculate. Um, I would in some ways like to think so. Um, uh, if one can attribute that to a sense of both the positive benefits of accommodating and enabling a Christian community to worship in that context, and also, I imagine, recognizing uh, from the North Korean regime's point of view the possible advantages of building closer connections outside of the traditional political relations, which, of course, have always been very fraught. Yeah. Was the World Council of Churches ever suspicious about North Korea's sincerity in wanting to join? Well, I mean, the issue of membership of the Korean Christians Federation hasn't been directly or officially raised in recent times. And I'd be a little surprised uh, if it were possible for them to to seek membership, uh, given the, the, the nature of the system in, in, in North Korea. Um, we do joke about it, though, sometimes. Uh, when I'm with the North Korean counterparts, and sometimes I'll say, you know, this was a great meeting. Maybe next time you can, next year you can apply for membership of the WCC, and we will laugh and uh, drink some more soju, and uh, it will pass. Wait, hang on. So let me clarify. So they're not actually a member. No. What What is the status of the Korean Christian Federation then, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the World Council of Churches? An ecumenical partner. Um, they are uh, a partner that we relate to, uh, that we have a very close relationship with and that we seek to cultivate, and maybe they will one day be uh, a member. Ah. In this sense, although it's a radically different situation, in this sense it's a similar sort of functional relationship as that, as that which we have with the Roman Catholic Church. I was about to ask not that. A member, yeah. uh, not a member, but uh, we have very, very close and increasingly intimate relations and collaborations with the Roman Catholic Church. But we don't expect that uh, in time in the foreseeable future that the Roman Catholic Church will be coming to the World Council of Churches to apply for membership. But we very much value uh, and appreciate the collaboration, uh, which is, I think, um, extremely important and useful. Do you, uh, um, can you maybe fill me in a little bit on what utility uh, the North Korean state gets out of uh, being an ecumenical partner of the World Council of Churches? What's in it for them? Um, uh, again, I would have to speculate. I don't know. But I think um, a little window on the world, a little channel of communication that is not um, directly implicated and um, not quite so affected by political wins. Um, what we do notice is that this channel has been maintained, allowed, enabled uh, by the North Korean regime, because it couldn't happen if it weren't, uh, throughout, continuously, throughout the worst of the political tensions. In fact, I have the impression that it is sometimes more active, marginally, uh, during times when political circumstances are difficult. How does the uh, the council navigate a course through, on the one hand, having an official relationship with the North Korean government, and on the other hand, knowing that there are probably uh, lots of hidden churches and Christians in the country? Well, of course, given the way things are in North Korea, it's not really possible or practicable for us to have any contact with any communities of that type. Um, you know how it is when you are visiting North Korea. You do not travel freely, you have a certain program and an agenda, and you have certain uh, approved uh, counterparts. Uh, we are fortunate to have this um, very long-standing and um, very uh, well-established relationship with the KCF as the 
officially recognized um, community and entity of Christianity in North Korea. Uh, but we have no means of trying to access other communities that may be outside of uh, that officially rep represented structure. And if we did so, that would be um, very much to the detriment of and probably cause considerable danger uh, to those communities, to our officially recognized counterparts in North Korea and probably to ourselves. Is it a topic that you uh, or, or your, um, your colleagues raise with, uh, with the Korean Christian Federation or the North Korean government? Directly, it's difficult. Um, you know, I mean, they're, under, they're, they're accountable in one way or another to political uh, authorities, uh, and they uh, stand at risk vis-a-vis uh, -vis those political authorities. So we try not to overtly put them in situations that are embarrassing and difficult and dangerous for them. We try to uh, work at the margins of what's possible and to push the envelope each time we meet uh, of what can be discussed and what can be addressed. And we make incremental advances. We do uh, refer from time to time to Christianity at large in uh, North Korea. Uh, when we speak about issues of how many Christians, uh, what's the status of the community, etc., we begin to tread upon some of those subjects. But we try in every respect to do no harm, at the very least to do no harm, to the counterparts with whom we work in this and any other context. Now, it, it could be argued, uh, I suppose, that by, by not speaking or not addressing the, uh, the issue of uh, unrecognized uh, Christian communities or churches, that one is, in effect, uh, tacitly consenting to uh, uh, persecution by North Korean authorities. No, I, I don't see it that way. I mean, certainly the history of the World Council of Churches vis-a-vis um, -vis churches in the um, former Eastern Bloc uh, during Soviet Union times is perhaps relevant in this regard. Mm. I, think very, one, I was actually going to ask you about that. Yeah, what, what can we learn from that experience? I think the um, approach to the World Council of Churches has, already been, has always been to try to build relationships, to engage in dialogue, to build channels of communication, to build bridges. Um, at a certain point, one has to tread carefully in order to maintain the fragile bridge that has been built. I think in the case of the uh, churches in the former Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc area, I think it was very important for them to have access uh, to the wider Christian world, to have a means of establishing relationships and of becoming familiar with each other. Uh, across those divides. And, of course, uh, there were Christian communities and Christian individuals that were uh, persecuted and uh, uh, in danger and in those contexts. I'm not sure that um, the World Council of Churches speaking out uh, vigorously and uh, frequently on those issues, knowing that that would destroy the bridges that had been built, would have helped. It certainly would have harmed the quality of the relationships that were established and that, I think, certainly helped to build a sense of common identity across political boundaries that uh, were in existence at that time. Now, in China, uh, at present, there's also a, a state church as well as lots of underground Christian communities. Uh, does the World Council of Churches see a parallel between China and North Korea in that regard? Uh, in some respects, I mean, uh, in terms of the nature of the constraints uh, that um, uh, exist in relation to religious expression in, in China, DPRK is a, a whole other category again uh, beyond that, uh, but, uh, but there are some similarities. 
But there, I think the differences end. Uh, I mean, in terms of size and salience and activity, levels of activity, um, the situation for the officially recognized Chinese Christians is, is very, very different from uh, that of the KCF in North Korea. And again, you know, we are limited in terms of our capacity to maintain a relationship and to continue to build bridges um, by the official constraints under which the church operates in that particular context including in China. Just as a, a point of comparison, are there any Chinese churches that are members of the World Council of Churches? Yes, the China Christian Council is a member, mm. uh, and this is a very, very large community. By some measures, by some measures the largest Protestant church, if you uh, arrogate them together, mm -hmm. uh, in the world. Mm. Now, there's a handful of officially recognized uh, churches, church communities in Pyongyang, like there's the, the Bongsu I previously mentioned, built in 1988. There's also the uh, Chilgok uh, Protestant Church, which has... Um, Chilgol. Uh, has a, sorry, Chilgol, I misspelled that, has a reference, uh, as a historical uh, relevance to, uh, to Kim Il-sung's family. And there's also the, the Jiangchung Roman Catholic Cathedral, as well as a very small uh, Russian Orthodox Church. Now, occasionally, now I've been to North Korea a number of times. I've never actually been able to visit any of these churches, never even seen them um, from the road. But occasionally you hear uh, of some visitors who have been to these churches. And uh, let's just say that um, opinions on them are mixed, to say the least. Now, some call them uh, show churches or Potemkin churches, uh, where the congregation seems to have been uh, ordered to attend as almost as if it were part of a job. Uh, does the World Council of Churches have a position on uh, on these uh, these churches in Pyongyang? Um, yeah, uh, I mean we visited uh, all of them and uh, worshipped in two of them. Oh, and, and also we've uh, visited the seminary that is attached to the Bongsu Church in the same compound, as well as as well as their some of their other facilities. Um, I think that on the one hand we observe that the congregation that does appear in the churches, at least when we are present, is um, elderly, and that there are very few, if any, young people. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, we've, we've highlighted as a concern and mentioned uh, to our counterparts at the KCF. On the other hand, there does seem to be a relatively active, small, very small, as is the church as a whole, but a relatively active seminary program for training future pastors and, and leaders of because you know apart from the the two churches that uh, are held by the KCF the Bongsu church and the Chilgol church according to what we are told every other church community in their um, in their constituency meets in a house church format I don't, I don't mean underground but uh, but it, they meet in houses private houses um, there are no other church structures elsewhere in uh, in North Korea um, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we observe that, but on the other hand, when we, when we hear the pastors preach, when we attend their services, um, my theologically trained and Korean speaking colleagues do affirm to me repeatedly that this is not just theater. This, there, there is, there is substance to this. It, it cannot just be theater. So I guess in summary, we observe that there is a, an elderly population in the in the congregations when we attend uh, that there is uh, and therefore presumably a declining demographically declining population cannot say um, who if anybody attends when uh, we or other international visitors do not attend however uh, one of my former colleagues another uh, world council of churches staffer who went on to other things eric weingartner a canadian national 
uh, after after he was one of those who was in the uh, the origins of this whole process of of engagement with the KCF and the DPRK. Uh, he subsequently went on to become the um, uh, resident director of the Food Assistance Liaison Unit. Uh, under the auspices of the World Food Program, resident in Pyongyang in uh, the DPRK um, uh, for, I think, two years, traveled very widely in the country, did, on a relatively informal basis, um, visit with some of the house church communities and also attend, uh, unannounced, some of the church services in Bongsu and Chilgol from time to time. And communities were worshipping there, small, elderly, but present. Uh, uh, did your uh, Korean-speaking colleagues mention whether the uh, uh, Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il were mentioned in the uh, the teachings at the church? Yes, um, and there's been uh, variations as to the degree to which um, uh, this sort of material is included in, in church services. Um, sometimes it has increased, sometimes it has waned. Um, but what we've noted in more recent visits, I mean, the most recent visit we had to the DPRK was in May 2018, uh, is that there's actually very little, if any, reference now to the uh, to the leaders, to the uh, Kim family or otherwise. Have any of your uh, Korean-speaking colleagues done anything cheeky, like, for example, ask a, uh, a churchgoer, I, I don't mean the pastor, but ask a churchgoer to name a book of the Bible or something like that? Probably, but if so, they haven't confessed that to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, you mentioned a visit in May 2018. I had a, a note here about that, that uh, there was a delegation of six from both the World Council of Churches and the World Communion of Reformed Churches uh, that went to Pyongyang uh, in early May 2018. That was shortly after the uh, uh, the Panmunjom uh, summit between President Moon of South Korea and Chairman Kim of North Korea. Were you part of that delegation? Yeah, it was actually fascinating. Uh, you could say uh, providential that it just happened. It was organized, obviously, planned well in advance, but it just so happened to fall almost immediately after um, the Panmunjom declaration. Indeed, we started our visit in Seoul and uh, had a briefing from the then Minister for Unification, who had literally just returned from Panmunjom. And uh, and uh, so we, 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 we had it very fresh, uh, both from the South Korean government side and then when we subsequently traveled on to the DPRK from their side. Um, and we had a meeting, amongst others, with the uh, President of the Supreme People's Assembly, uh, Kim Yong-nam, uh, where we, we had discussion about that. So, uh, so yeah, that was really fascinating to be present in both places in that vital moment uh, with such opportunity and hopefulness in front of us. And now, was that uh, that visit just a, a dialoguing visit, or was there something, uh, uh, a special ceremony that was taking place, or the inauguration of something? No, I mean, uh, we try periodically to schedule such visits whenever it's possible um, for it to be done in order to maintain the contact and also our own uh, our own familiarity with uh, and sense of the situation in the DPRK over time to see what evolves and uh, and how things are developing. So this was primarily just an attempt to keep that regularity going and that familiarity up to date. Uh, but it was also an opportunity for um, our General Secretary, then General Secretary recently left the post, uh, Reverend Dr. Olaf Fixer-Tveit, to renew his acquaintance, his personal acquaintance with the DPRK. Um, I think his previous visit had been uh, not before uh, in 2013 or so. Um, so it was time that he, he returned. So that was the hook around which we, we um, 
built to the visit, but it happened to fall into this political moment, which was extremely exciting. One little, uh, nice little uh, vignette uh, from the visit, though, was that, of course, uh, one uh, takes a gift for the supreme leader. Uh, it's not, it doesn't behoove the World Council of Churches to take a Rolex watch or something of that type. So the gift that we took was a, um, a, a beautiful icon from the Romanian Orthodox Church, uh, an icon of Jesus Christ as Prince of Peace. And uh, you can imagine um, uh, how what sort of explanations we were required to give to to describe what this thing is and uh, and what its meaning is and to assure them that it or to for them to assure themselves that it was an appropriate gift to be conveyed to the uh, to the great leader. Um, and so we had to go into a detailed explanation about the meaning of this thing, that it uh, it obviously is an image of Christ, uh, the 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 source of our faith uh, in the position, in the um, modus of Prince of Peace, uh, Christ as peacemaker, and therefore an inspiration for our work for peace building around the world, um, uh, that it is a very ancient, a modern example, but a, a representative of a very ancient form of Christian art uh, that is um, created by artists who remain anonymous because they paint uh, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. And that it is not made for commercial purposes, only for liturgical purposes, and therefore is literally priceless. And uh, it was accepted. So that was uh, that was beautiful. And there was a little ceremony where it was uh, presented to President Kim Jong-nam for the great leader. Do you have any idea where that might be now? No idea. Uh -huh. Have you ever been to the International House of Friendship up in uh, Myohyang-sen? More than once. Okay. For my many and grievous sins. Yes, I, I, it's one of those things that might end up there if it's uh, unlucky. I, I, I imagine, I imagine, maybe alongside Billy Graham's uh, gift. Right, yeah, or the uh, the basketball from Dennis Rodman, or the, uh, <laughs> my, my favorite one would, is the... Uh, that would be too undignified. The stuffed standing alligator from the Sandinista <laughs> regime uh, holding a, yes. uh, uh, a tray of uh, wine glasses or something like that, doesn't it? It's a remarkable piece. Indeed. Uh, now, obviously, uh, with the, the the current coronavirus pandemic, there's nobody traveling to North Korea. But was there one planned for this year, or is there one planned for the near future that you can tell us about? Um, there's always a plan. Um, it's always dependent, though, upon the ability of the KCF to confirm an invitation and to receive us. In general, uh, they are very um, willing and um, and I think there's never been an excessively long period where we have uh, not been able to to, to travel. But, uh, of course, this is an entirely new world now um, following the coronavirus, and it's hard to say uh, when that will be possible again. Um, we were lucky to have squeezed in a meeting with our KCF counterparts uh, at the end of last year, uh, in early December, in Shenyang, in China. Mm. Um, uh, so we were happened to have that opportunity to meet with them relatively recently and to mutually update each other. Um, I have had some communications from KCF since uh, the coronavirus outbreak, and uh, right now, and I, I'm anticipating receipt of a, a little article from the chairperson of the Korean Christians Federation, Kang Myung Chol, uh, who is preparing an article uh, for the World Council of Churches for distribution in our circles about the current situation in North Korea. Oh, it, it's actually about the uh, the pandemic or fighting the pandemic in North Korea, is it? Yes, I anticipate it will say um, very similar things to that which we hear officially from the from the government. I doubt that it would be radically depart from that, but um, 
But but yes, we're very interested uh, and intrigued to to see what is included in this article. Interesting. And how soon should that be out? A week ago. Um, we're still waiting. It uh, oh, hopefully will come soon. Okay. Mm. And it'll be up on the website eventually, will it? It will, yes. Great. Uh, now, I'm not an expert on North Korean law, but as far as I understand the North Korean constitution, it both allows for the freedom of religion, but also allows for the freedom of anti-religious propaganda. You're a lawyer, I understand. I am. Are you aware of that clause in the Constitution about the anti-religious propaganda by the state? Um, I have heard tell of it. I haven't traced it back to its source, uh, least of all in the Korean original, uh, oh. but, but I, I have heard tell of it. Uh, certainly when we uh, visit North Korea and have meetings with higher level uh, political officials, they quite frequently refer to the uh, guarantee of uh, religious freedom in uh, the Constitution. And uh, it's something that, um, well, put it this way, there are many constitutions in many parts of the world that have guarantees of one sort or another. Mm. Uh, the question of the extent to which they are realized in practice on the ground is quite another thing. Mm -hmm. um, but um, we are at least somewhat comforted that at least a minimal degree of religious freedom is uh, demonstrably observed in, uh, in North Korea, uh, to the extent that these officially recognized religious bodies exist. Now, um, the constraints under which people have to operate in uh, actually observing their religious uh, uh, beliefs uh, is, of course, uh, very high in the DPRK. But uh, I think it's also a mistake and a uh, misrepresentation of the situation to say that there's no religious freedom in North Korea. That's not quite correct. Yeah, it's the anti-religious propaganda that I find interesting in this regard. There's actually a, a video that was uploaded on YouTube by a South Korean organization called Christian Today. Uh, it appears to be, uh, hard to prove, of course, but it appears to be, to all intents and purposes, a video of a North Korean program from North Korean Central Television, uh, which is all state-controlled, of course. And the original North Korean title is uh, Let Us Report Suspicious Things in People's Speech or Actions at the Right Time. That's my own loose translation. I could send you the link to the video later on. Uh, now, mm. in the video, it states that very clearly that being religious is the path of treason. Uh, it's antithetical to being a good North Korean citizen. And it shows uh, a Bible and other religious literature, along with uh, SD cards and USB sticks, as for forms of spiritual pornography that outside powers, mainly Westerners, try to smuggle into North Korea. P particularly Christianity uh, gets a, a bad rap because it's seen, unlike Buddhism, um, unlike, say, Confucian or the Chonda religion, as being an agent of imperialism, right? It's often mentioned in North Korean books uh, as, as being sort of a, a cat's paw of, of the American imperialists. Mm. Well, of course, there's a very strong historical strand of that in um, North Korean thinking at the leadership level, based upon the historical circumstances of the of the division and the conflict, that's a given uh, that there is a certain strand of that in the political thinking. Now, of course, the principle of freedom of religion or belief res uh, protects all forms of belief or non-belief or you know maybe even radical atheist sentiments. So that is protected as a matter of international law. Of course, if you have uh, government authorities promoting a particular uh, position, then that gives it a different color. I'm not aware of, the, uh, of this particular uh, report, but I'd be interested to see it. But I certainly don't doubt it, and I'm, uh, I know for a fact that it is a, um, uh, a, a strong strand in, um, in uh, Korean, North Korean political thought historically. But 
what I do think is also the case is that that was much more salient in the immediate aftermath of the of the Korean War, and that over time, as it became apparent to the leadership that the very small remaining Christian community was in fact no threat, and in fact many of them were working um, were were serving as uh, officials of the um, of the Korean Workers Party, uh, that they were. Not, not a threat and uh, need not be uh, persecuted and subjugated to, to the extent that had, might have been the case heretofore. So I think that relatively speaking, and I emphasize relatively, uh, things are certainly improved compared to that previous situation. Are people in North Korea imprisoned for religious beliefs or religious activities? Probably. We don't know. Uh, we have no means of uh, verifying that, but we're, of course, very aware of, uh, of the many credible and uh, uh, reasonable reports to that effect. Uh, there's also reports about North Koreans who go to China and who, upon being returned to North Korea, are asked specifically if they had any contact with Christians while outside the fatherland. Uh, some reports mm-hmm. suggest that people who do have contact with Christians or even attended churches, received a Bible or converted to Christianity, uh, face harsher uh, treatment uh, upon their return. Uh, is that something that the World Council of Churches is looking into and can protest about to the uh, DPRK government? You know, I think it depends upon the nature of uh, the individual's relationship to the officially recognized structures in, 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 in North Korea. Um, evidently, um, representatives of the Korean Christians Federation who um, not infrequently travel to visit us in, uh, in Switzerland or in the U.S. or in other parts of the world um, they don't have any problem of that kind. They have worshipped at services with us uh, here in, in, in many different parts of the world. Uh, they attended the, um, the 70th anniversary of the World Council of Churches in 2018, met, met Pope Francis even, uh, who was visiting us on, on, the same, uh, on the same occasion, and suffered no consequence. So I think the issue is more uh, about whether and to what extent um, individuals may be operating outside of the officially approved structures um, created by the North Korean regime uh, and or their religious relationships also bring with it a, a certain political element or political antagonism. Certainly, the uh, North Korean regime is extremely sensitive to uh, any um, American evangelical efforts in this regard. Although, ironically, it did welcome a couple of visits by uh, Reverend Billy Graham back in the 1990s. Yes, I'm still trying to get my head around that, but yes. Are you in touch with, or is the WCC in touch with his organization? Um, not, not regularly, but intermittently, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, does the, uh, the Council have a comment or position on the 2014 United Nations Committee of Inquiry findings on state pon- state-sponsored persecution of uh, churches and uh, religious people? We respect um, the work of the United Nations uh, for Human Rights. In fact, we are among the founding architects of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. It was one of the first things that the World Council of Churches did, even before it was officially created, to engage in the uh, articulation and the drafting of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, in particular, Article 18 on freedom of religion or belief. So, you know, my actually my original predecessor as director of the Commission of the Churches on International Affairs, uh, Frederick Nolder, uh, largely it was from his pen that the current formulation of that article comes. Um, so, so we feel a very strong sense of support, even uh, of affinity 
to the architecture of international human rights law and processes. So I would be the last person to criticize any efforts in that regard. And I certainly think that the key contribution of international human rights law and related processes is accountability, is uh, instruments to hold those responsible for violations accountable. Having said that, it's also necessary to see this in the context of um, uh, the, the political context. Again, from a do-no-harm perspective, I guess our question is, is it likely to improve the human rights situation for a larger number of people to contribute to what is seen and in some, to some extent is a political confrontation with the regime? Or are we more likely to improve the human rights situation for a larger number of people through dialogue and engagement and de-escalation? So I guess, I guess my perspective would be that the findings of the Commission of Inquiry are valid and proper. The political context in which it was delivered was problematical and contributed to an escalation of um, the political and, by extension, military confrontation with all the catastrophic downside risks that we, we all know. So, um, but I can tell you that we've had a number of conversations um, with our counterparts in the KCF, and to the extent that they are channeling a government position, which obviously they are um, in these contexts, uh, I think we do detect some wiggle room. So, uh, when on the one hand the Korean Christians Federation came to us with a certain formulation that they wanted included in a uh, an outcome document from one of our meetings that denounced the human rights uh, attack. Our response was to say, no, I mean, look, we support the realization of human rights for all people everywhere, including in North Korea. And we, we won't, we cannot join with you in an attack upon human rights per se. We do agree that the political misuse or the misuse of human rights language and processes for political purposes is problematic. And that we share a concern about, but we cannot join with you in denouncing human rights per se. And the other hopeful point that I would raise in this regard is, and I'm sure you're aware, that, uh, what was it, two or three years ago, for the first time ever, uh, an independent human rights expert from the UN system, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of People with Disabilities, was able to travel to North Korea and to engage in a very productive way with North Korean government counterparts on the issue of the human rights of people with disabilities, and came back from North Korea with a whole list of requests for technical assistance to assist the North Korean government in improving the situation for people with disabilities in North Korea. Now, to my mind, that illustrates the possibility, at least at the margins, of working in a constructive and collaborative fashion, albeit with a very authoritarian regime, but in the interests of improving the situation for real people on the ground. And that's the, that's the orientation that I would like to pursue rather than contributing to a generalized political confrontation with a regime of this type. Have you ever had any uh, dialogue or uh, correspondence with the, uh, the head of the uh, UN Committee of Inquiry, uh, Justice Michael Kirby? Um, yes, uh, not me personally, but the WCC uh, institutionally, yes, of course. Yeah, I interviewed him last year. I think it was in September for the uh, the podcast. I didn't get the sense from him that he was uh, interested in being part of any uh, political uh, attack on a, on a country. I think it, he was really 
you know doing it from uh, from honest motives uh, 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 absolutely oh please don't misunderstand me i'm certainly not uh, imputing to him or to anybody else working in that uh, process um, political motives but it nonetheless contributed to a political confrontation uh, not by design uh, so I think that, uh, you know, it's very unfortunate. What I do notice also, though, is that uh, in more recent years, the uh, current UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in North Korea itself, which is, of course, a mandate that is anathema to, uh, to the North Korean regime, but he has also been uh, adopting um, uh, an approach that seeks to engage in dialogue rather than in denunciation, rather than in simply um, producing a litany of, uh, of reports and denunciations. But again, to go um, back so to the way that Justice Kirby did it, I mean, there, there were attempts along the way before the report came out to, uh, to engage the North Korean government, that questions, you know, uh, questions were sent to them um, multiple occasions. If you listen to the interview, it's quite interesting. It goes into the whole process of how that worked there. And the North Korean government it made it clear from the start that not only was it not interested in engaging with that process, but they also made personal and very public attacks uh, on Justice Kirby himself. Yes, I'm aware. So I, I, I'm I, just, I, I guess I, I'm just struggling with understanding the, the, the idea that, uh, that the report itself somehow became part of a political confrontation when it seemed clear, at least the way that I remember it, uh, that the confrontation was mostly coming from the, uh, the North Korean government side. You know, I think it's the nature of how the mandate is described. This mandate is specific to human rights in, uh, was specific to human rights in North Korea in general. In the same way, the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in North Korea is, sp is specific to the country in a general sense. Whereas the other thematic mandates, like the one on uh, human rights of uh, people uh, with disabilities, is thematic, is general. It's not targeted at the country. North Korea is not the only country that vigorously resists country-specific mandates. Most, I would say the majority of members of the international community resist that. And, and there is uh, an incre a regular attack upon the very idea of country mandates in the Human Rights Council. So it's part of that political discourse. I'm not saying I approve it. It's a reality that, uh, that um, uh, these sorts of mandates are um, resisted vigorously by all countries. And as you could expect, North Korea is among the most vigorous resistors of any such mandate. So it's in that context that I think you have to understand this process. Uh, does the World Council of Churches have a stance on Christian groups in South Korea or elsewhere who uh, smuggle Bibles and other religious literature and media into North Korea using balloons and other means? Not per se, uh, but again, we observe that uh, some of these measures have uh, demonstrably increased tensions at the border and uh, in general in the political context. Um, we know that they are also accompanied not only by, uh, not all of them, but some of them are accompanied not only by uh, biblical materials, but also by quite strident um, uh, propaganda uh, and attacks against the, the leaders of North Korea, which obviously uh, increases tensions and makes, makes things more difficult. I guess our concern is about any initiative that, uh, that reduces opportunities for dialogue and engagement uh, rather than increasing them. Uh, what do you know about how uh, legal ways that uh, Bibles can be obtained in North Korea? Are they printed there? Are they brought in from elsewhere? To the extent that they are available, they are locally sourced. Now, what we did observe in the library, the very small, very under-equipped library of the seminary, is that most of the materials there are extremely old. Hmm. 
Uh, and one of the projects that we had begun to discuss with the um, KCF is whether and by what means uh, we, as the World Council of Churches, could, could contribute to um, supporting them and uh, to equipping them with, um, with uh, more up-to-date materials, not only Bibles, but, uh, but other theological um, uh, materials that could assist them in their, um, in their training work. Um, it's not progressed far or fast. Um, you know, the nature of our, of our physical presence with uh, the DPRK is uh, intermittent, although ongoing. But, uh, but the issue has been raised uh, more than once. And I know that a number of our South Korean counterparts who are also in, uh, in regular contact with the, um, with the KCF through the National Council of Churches in, in South Korea have also uh, tried to address similar things in order to assist them in this regard. But to my knowledge, the uh, Bibles and other um, materials, theological materials, are historic or locally produced. Were you able to, uh, on your visit to the seminary, were you able to meet any of the seminarians? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, we, we saw, um, I mean, I think, if I recall correctly, there's only ever a group of about uh, 10 or so in the seminary at any one time. Uh, and the program, they don't have concurrent different years of the program. They take one group and they take them through a whole five-year course and then start again uh, from scratch. Um, um, so, yeah, we've met them. Um, they've shown us around the premises. Um, they've sung hymns for us, etc. I'm just wondering what kind of uh, life process can lead someone who's born and raised in a state where uh, it's strongly encouraged to be uh, religious of any kind, and uh, you know the the, uh, the loyalty and, and fidelity is directed towards the three generations of uh, of leadership. I'm just wondering what would bring such a person to say, you know, uh, I'm going to be become a Christian pastor. It, it, it seems. It seems almost as unlikely um, as if somebody in a hunter-gatherer community woke up one day and says, I'm going to be a, uh, a, an astrophysicist or a pure mathematician. Uh, yes, and yet people do. Um, uh, I think uh, that vocation is becoming that in, in generally, in the, generally in the world today an increasingly um, strange concept for most people, that some would experience a vocation, but evidently people do. Is it possible that they're being directed by the North Korean state to enter the seminary? Uh, and many things possible. Mm, okay. Um, the, uh, the World Council of Churches recently uh, won a, a prize from the South Korean government. Could you tell us a bit about that and what was that for? Yeah, so uh, this was an award, I believe the highest civilian award that uh, can be offered by the um, South Korean government to our uh, outgoing General Secretary, Reverend Dr. Olaf Fixer-Tveit, um, in recognition of his work and, by extension, the work of the World Council of Churches to um, try to promote dialogue uh, and peace on the, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, of course, uh, this is something of which President Moon has been long aware uh, from his earlier collaboration as a human rights lawyer with the National Council of Churches in South Korea, our ecumenical, our related ecumenical body in South Korea, and uh, something that was renewed in his mind when we were able to visit him uh, in 2017, I think just about three weeks after his inauguration, two or three weeks, um, and to represent to him in his new capacity uh, the work of the World Council of Churches, our commitment to uh, continuing to pursue dialogue 
and to contributing to efforts for for peace on the peninsula. And I think he very much affirmed uh, our, in, our our efforts and uh, our intentions and saw them as being consistent with the uh, program that uh, he had in mind and subsequently pursued. Um, so we've maintained contact on every occasion that um, we visited North Korea. We've uh, maintained contact with uh, the South Korean government and uh, briefed them either in capital or through the missions here in Geneva um, about uh, the, the, what we've learned and uh, what we expect and what we hope to pursue going forward. So I think there's been a good communication, a good collaboration, and uh, particularly with um, the General Secretary uh, finishing his term, it was an opportune moment. Uh, for President Moon to give this award, which is in recognition, actually, of the World Council of Churches' more than 30-year-long history of efforts in this regard. We talked earlier about the the history of uh, of Christianity in the northern half of Korea, um, and uh, how you you mentioned that uh, you know a lot of the South Korean churches have their roots in North Korea because they, these are people who were displaced uh, before and during the Korean War. Um, are are all the, uh, the the churches in South Korea? Are they you know standing fully behind the World Council of Churches uh, efforts to dialogue with the North Korean government? Uh, sorry, with the North Korean churches within the uh, restrictions set upon it by the North Korean government. It's impossible to respond to that in any monolithic yes or no because the churches themselves are far from monolithic in their in their opinions and perspectives. Um, I think. Probably demographically, uh, the church constituency uh, in, in, in South Korea in total is relatively conservative and uh, relatively concerned about uh, North Korea. It's also true that a very, very strong tradition within um, uh, South Korean churches is a history of social activism, in particular uh, against the military dictatorships, uh, advocacy for human rights, and also engagement with uh, with North Korea in the interests of peace and stability. The uh, Na- National Council of Churches in, in South Korea has always been a very progressive voice within the church constituency uh, in South Korea, and they maintain that profile to this day. Um, I think uh, a, a number of the prominent um, mainland Protestant Christian leaders in uh, in South Korea have recognized, even if they aren't by instinct of this political persuasion, have recognized uh, the importance of uh, dialogue and engagement against the, uh, as a hedge or as a bulwark against the, the much worse consequences of confrontation, uh, particularly in this special situation on the Korean Peninsula and vis-a-vis the sort of uh, leadership that North Korea has. Uh, what's the Council's hope or vision for Korea? I think um, a reduction of tensions in the first instance and the elimination of unnecessary provocations on both sides. Important for us as a rather early step, not as an end point, is a formal end to the Korean War. Uh, we believe that the unresolved history of the Korean War somehow poisons uh, the atmosphere uh, for future progress on current issues. We also think that the process of um, replacing the armistice agreement with a formal declaration of the end of the war and a peace treaty would also earn a peace dividend and create more conducive environment for dealing with the current issues uh, that have emerged since the end of the Korean, since the practical end of the Korean war. Um, So that's actually a short-term objective rather than a long-term objective. Um, We also hope uh, and pray 
uh, for peaceful coexistence on the Korean Peninsula um, that avoids and protects against the risk of conflict in that region, which compared to almost anywhere else in the world has much worse potential consequences from a humanitarian point of view. Now, what the future might, the longer term future might hold in terms of forms and modalities of reunification, uh, I think that's a, a very difficult question um, to imagine. It's hard to imagine two such radically different political and economic systems being combined into a national unit. Uh, on the other hand, peaceful coexistence is, we believe, a viable objective that can be envisaged now. And the means of doing that, I think, have been discussed and presented and a certain degree of unanimity found in successive discussions between North and South Korean governments. At the moment, there really, well, I should say for the last eight months or so, there really doesn't seem to be much dialogue at all between the South and North Korean governments. Uh, the South Korean government keeps making overtures, uh, not much response from the North Koreans. Yes, it's a low ebb. And many of us are very disappointed uh, that um, those high hopes from 2018 uh, have not yet come to fruition, although I think all of us realized that that the highest hopes were unlikely to be realized and that the road would, as always, be a bumpy one. There would be ups and downs, and this is certainly a, a, a deep down mm. right now. Um, what do you put that we, down we, to? I think the efforts to achieve a, um, a grand bargain were misplaced. I think you know a once-and-for-all deal was never going to be achievable in this particular complex situation. I think the, the, the real need and the real possibility was for incremental but quite brisk progress incrementally, quid pro quo, small steps um, uh, reciprocally. And I think, I think that some of the overtures uh, that were made by the North Korean side, while uh, many would have considered them inadequate, were necessary politically to consider and to accept as an incremental step in order to keep progress going. I fear that we've, we've certainly lost that momentum. I hope we haven't lost the opportunity altogether. And I hope that if and when the opportunity comes back, that we recognize it for how precious it is and that it really can't be squandered for short-term political interests. Okay, well, that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. But I hope that things do improve in the future. Thank you once again for joining me on the podcast, Peter Proof. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's podcast episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed and also consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will always find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. <laughs>